Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. Have you, uh, have you ever been on a plane that is about to take off and the pilot says, this is uh, flight American Airlines 4231 leaving for Los Angeles when in reality you're, you should be going to New York or whatever. Like the pilot gets, says the wrong destination. You're like, whoa, is this really going to Los Angeles? And then hopefully it was just a, a pilot's mistake and, and in reality you, you're going to the right place. If you have been in an airplane where you are in the wrong airplane, I, I'd like to hear more about that. Um, but, uh, well, today, uh, you are on the wrong airplane because we are not going to preach, uh, we're not going to go over revelation, even though I had said on my email that we were going to, uh, look at revelation 20, um, I had every intent to go over revelation 20, but this is the most contro- <laughs> this is the most controversial passage in the entire book of Revelation. It's probably the most confusing one and the most uh, challenging passage in the book of Revelation. And uh, it, it has been two, 2,000 years for the church, and the church still hasn't figured it out. And so I, I could not figure it out in a week. Uh, <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I thought... I could I could come here and just kind of share what I've learned so far, and then uh, next week we can do part two. But um, I had I actually had another message that it was already uh, more or less ready that I preached in Yakima, and so I wanted to share that with you instead. I wanted to preach something that was already ready to be preached. And if you came here just for the Book of Revelation, well, sorry, you're you're on the wrong airplane. Uh, no, please stay and then come back next week. Um, so please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Now, this passage is not altogether unrelated to Revelation 20. Revelation 20 is about the, uh, what is known as the millennial kingdom, uh, Jesus' kingdom for 1,000 years. and Some of the things that are debated is, well, is this a literal thousand years or is this a symbolic thousand years or what is going on here? Um, One of the questions that that, that this passage elicits sometimes, that Revelation 20 elicits sometimes is, well, if we believe that Jesus has already begun to reign, if we believe that Jesus is already seated at the right hand of the Father and is already ruling, then why is there still sin in this world. If Jesus is already on his throne, then why does the world look the way it looks right now? Why is there unbelief? Why are people still rebelling against him? And so, while we are not going to answer all of those questions right now, this passage in Matthew speaks a little bit about that. It speaks about this tension that we experience in the kingdom of God. 
The book of Matthew is a book that speaks a lot about the kingdom of God. In fact, Matthew mentions the theme over 50 times in his book. And uh, most, if not all of those times, is Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. And so for, for this book, in, the, in this book, it seems like it's, it's all about the kingdom of God. And, and, and we see Jesus in starting his ministry preaching the kingdom of God. And then he continues his ministry preaching, preaching the, king, the kingdom of God. But up to chapter 13, we see that Jesus' ministry is more or less successful. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus is preaching. The multitudes are coming to him. He is preaching um, uh, about the kingdom. He has given the Sermon on the Mount. He has just finished preaching a bunch of parables. And for the most part, his ministry is successful. Yes, he, he has begun to experience a little bit of... Uh, a little bit of opposition from the Pharisees, but nothing has quite materialized up to this point. But in chapter 13, verse 53, we come to a transition in the book of Matthew. And after this transition, Jesus' ministry actually starts, humanly speaking, it starts going downhill or spiraling down in that he starts to experience more persecution in that Instead of becoming more and more public, he actually withdraws and becomes more and more private. In fact, uh, during the, the parables, the first several parables, he tells them to the multitudes. But the last few parables, he only tells them to his disciples, to his inner circle. So this is a very upside down kind of uh, uh, book in the sense that we would expect his Jesus' ministry to just go up and up and up and up until he becomes, you know, this great Messiah, kind of like the, the one we saw in Revelation 19, right? Where he enters with his white horse and, and rules the nations with a rod of iron. But here in Matthew, we're not dealing with that, with his second coming yet. Here in Matthew, we're dealing with Jesus coming as a servant, coming uh, as, the, as the suffering servant of God. And so this ministry is actually going to go down all the way down to him dying on the cross. And so in this passage, Jesus has just finished talking about the parables. Jesus has just finished uh, uh, talking about all of these parables that speak about the kingdom of God. And when we would expect success, Jesus actually experiences rejection. He experiences rejection from his hometown in Nazareth. And then we see John the Baptist, who was the, the, Jesus' forerunner. We see him being murdered. So let's read Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 53. And we're actually going to go into uh, chapter 14 as well. So I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word, if you're able. Matthew 13, verse 53 says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? 
And are not all of his sisters with us? Where then, where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many works there because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oath and his guests, he commanded it. Oh, sorry. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So here in this passage, we are introduced to a tension, right? Jesus has just spoken about the kingdom. Jesus has just said that if he casts demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God is at hand. And and he has preached all of these parables about the kingdom of God, how the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that begins small and then it grows into a large tree or it's like a little bit of leaven in the mix, how it starts small, but then the leaven uh, uh, leavens the whole dough. So he has talked about this, and we, humanly speaking, would probably expect for the next section to say, and Jesus went to his hometown, and everyone received his message, and John the Baptist's ministry was extremely successful, and he baptized many more people. But we are introduced to this tension where Jesus goes into his hometown, and he is rejected. And John the Baptist, this this. Uh, mighty man of God, this uh, last prophet of the Old Testament is actually killed. And so how do we reconcile this? How do we reconcile the reality of Jesus reigning of his kingdom having already begun and yet experiencing setbacks in the kingdom of God? When we look we, when we look at, at several passages in the Bible, we, we see a lot of uh, very powerful passages that speak about the reality of the kingdom of God. We, we read in, in many passages that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. He is ruling until God puts all of his enemies under his feet. We read that, or, or, or we read when, when the disciples saw Jesus being transfigured. Uh, we read in the book of Acts how the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples and the kingdom of God officially uh, begun. We read the book of Hebrews and, and he tells us, right, that we have received this kingdom that cannot be shaken. And he talks about us being gathered in this 
feastal gathering surrounded by angels and in, in, in the presence of God. Or for example, as we've been talking about in Revelation, we see the throne room, we see God there, we see Jesus already having conquered as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And yet we look at our world and we see all the suffering that is going on. We see the abuse that many experience or, or sometimes that even ourselves experience. We see sin. We continue to battle with sin, with temptation. We see homelessness. We see addiction, abortion, discrimination, sexual immorality, war, sickness, abuse of authority, and the list goes on. In our own lives, we see the power of sin and the power of uh, sickness. Right? We read on the one hand that Jesus carried upon him all of, all of our infirmities, and yet we are reminded every day that we are still experiencing sickness. So how do we reconcile this tension? Well, I think that here, we, from Jesus' response and from John's testimony, we see how we are supposed to live in light of this tension. And so the main point that I want us to see today is that the kingdom of God will be met with skepticism and with opposition. Nonetheless, we must be wise and bold. The kingdom of God will be met with skepticism. However, we must be, or with skepticism and opposition. However, we must be wise and bold. So we see first that the kingdom of God is met with skepticism. The message of the kingdom causes people to be offended. It says in verse 53, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So Jesus goes to his hometown. By the way, this is Nazareth, his hometown. Even though Jesus was born in Bethlehem, his hometown is Nazareth because remember that uh, the, it, Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem because of a census. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But then when Herod wanted to kill all of the babies, all of the two-year-olds and younger, uh, Joseph was, was warned in a dream and they fled to Egypt. And they were in Egypt until Herod, not, not the same Herod. This is, uh, this is uh, the Herod that we see here. The one that wanted to kill the babies is his dad. And so uh, once that Herod dies, they come back to the land of Israel, but they go back to Nazareth, and that's where Jesus grows up. So they, he, Jesus goes to Nazareth after finishing these parables, and he begins to preach. In, in the parable, not the parable, in the parallel account that we read in Luke, we are told that he is given a scroll. So he goes into the synagogue, and he is given the scroll of Isaiah. So this was customary whenever, whenever a Jewish uh, uh, adult man would come into a synagogue, he would be asked to share about uh, or, or to, to read from, from the Old Testament and to, and to share what he had learned. And so Jesus uh, reads from Isaiah and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then he says, this, this prophecy has been fulfilled right here in your hearing. And so everyone is, no wonder they are astonished. Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. I am the one who was supposed to come. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
And they were also offended because in that same instance, after they meet him with skepticism, Jesus says, in, in not, in not in these words, he, he says, in other words, with giving two Old Testament examples, but basically he says, the kingdom of God is being taken from you and is going to be given to the Gentiles. It's going to be given to those who, to, to the sinners and to the prostitutes and to those who believe. And so obviously these people are extremely offended. Obviously they are astonished at his teaching. They are offended. They take offense. This is not just your regular offense uh, that happens when uh, someone comes into a room and they don't say hi to you or someone gives you the, the evil eye and you're like, oh, I'm offended. How dare he not say hi to me? No, this is some serious offense. They were so offended. We don't read it here, but we read it in Luke that they were so offended that they wanted to throw him off a cliff. That's how offended they were at Jesus. His own people, the people from his own hometown, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. For Matthew, the focus is not so much the content of his teaching, but rather is the response of the people. They were astonished. They took offense at him. Now, should this be surprising to us? I mean, on the one hand, I would say, yes. Yeah, definitely. This is Jesus' hometown. These are the people that saw Jesus growing up. Jesus is performing miracles, is, is teaching with authority, and yet they rejected him. So on the one hand, I think it, we should be shocked. But on the other hand, this was to be expected. Earlier in Matthew, in Matthew 10, 34, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So, people being offended. Even Jesus' family. Now, this is, this is uh, perhaps a little bit of speculation, but there is a chance that even Mary, and if Joseph was alive at the time, and his brothers, there is a chance that even them were amongst those astonished and, and offended. And we see this because uh, remember in the, in the gospel of, Math, of John, when they tell Jesus, hey, Jesus, your, mo your mother and your brothers are looking for you. And he says, who is my mother and who are my brothers but those who do the will of God? So almost kind of implying, again, this is mostly speculation. And of course, we know that if they were uh, offended by Jesus, eventually they turn around because we do see later that they believe in him, that they... Uh, John also tells us, and, and his family believed in him. So one quick implication that I want to draw from here is we should not be afraid to offend people. We should not try to water down the gospel or to make it a little bit less uh, poignant or a little bit less offensive because we are afraid of, of offending others. These days, uh, the worst thing that you can do is to offend someone. We live in a very 
tolerant society as long as you do not speak the truth to someone else and, and that truth is offensive, right? But the gospel message is an offensive message. Yes, it is a message of good news. It is incredible news of salvation. But these are only incredible good news for those who receive this message with humility. Because the message is, repent. How did Jesus begin his ministry? What was the first recorded word of Jesus' ministry? Repent. That is the very first word that is recorded of Jesus' ministry. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist, his message was, repent. The prophets before John the Baptist, all of the Old Testament prophets, their message was, repent. Peter at Pentecost, his message was, repent. All of the apostles, their message was, repent. So why do we think that maybe we can soften the message a little bit so as not to offend someone? And we can, instead of starting up with repent, maybe we can say, well, you know, that's, that's just too aggressive. That might turn people off. Let's just start with something a little more subtle. That's not what Jesus does. The gospel message, the message of the kingdom is an offensive message to those who are in rebellion against God. But we are still called to preach this message. So if you are faithful to proclaim this gospel of the kingdom, it is very likely that family members will reject you. It is very likely that old friends, that co-workers, that neighbors, that people that, that know you or, or knew you before you came to Christ will be offended by you. Do not be discouraged by this. Do not be discouraged if even people in your own family, do not be discouraged if even your own children or your own parents are offended by the message that you are proclaiming. Because if this is the situation, you are in good company. Jesus himself was rejected by his own hometown. After this, uh, after this episode, well, the people ask, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not, this, is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? This, by the way, is a good passage to uh, confirm that the Virgin Mary did not always remain a virgin, right? She had other, other children. Um, but anyway, I digress. Uh, Jesus quotes to them in, in verse uh, 58 or 57, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Those who should have been the, the most eager and ready to receive Jesus because they saw him growing up. They saw his holiness. They saw that he had something special in him. They did not receive him. But this, this is just a, sm a, a small picture of a larger scale phenomenon. Remember what John says at the beginning of his gospel. He says, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. He came to the people of Israel, but the people of Israel did not receive him. They rejected him. 
Yet again, this should not surprise us. This tension of the kingdom of God should not surprise us because Jesus explained in his parables that the word of the kingdom would receive a different response. We should not be surprised by unbelief. We should continue to preach the gospel faithfully. And while we should have a, 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 a positive expectation that the Spirit is going to do the work, we should also be realistic and know that many people will not believe. But that should not discourage us. That should lead us to move on to the next person and continue to preach the gospel. And this is, this is what Jesus did. To, to quote Jesus, he did not throw pearls before the swine. It says in verse 58, And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The people of Nazareth's unbelief resulted in Jesus not performing many miracles. Now, this, this, is not, this doesn't mean that Jesus was incapable of performing miracles. This doesn't mean that Jesus needs our faith in order for him to perform miracles. And if we don't have faith, then he's you know, uh, hand-tied and, and there's nothing he can do. No. Jesus can do whatever he wants. He is God. He could have performed many. In fact, he did. He did perform a few miracles there. He did heal a few people there. We see that uh, here in, in Luke, right? It says he did not do many mighty works. He did a few mighty works. But overall, he chose not to perform more miracles. And I think, I think, I'm not sure, but I think that one of the reasons why he did this is perhaps because he knew that the more miracles he performed, the more evidence, the more judgment was piling against the unbelief of his own hometown. And maybe he did this out of love. Maybe he knew and said, if I perform more and more, the judgment will be more and more severe for these people. But at the same time, I think, like I quoted, he was not throwing pearls before the swine. Jesus did not waste his miracles on people that were hardened. We see in the Gospels that the Pharisees were asking over and over, show us a sign, show us a sign. We want to see a sign. And Jesus told him, the only sign I will give you is the sign of Jonah. And he was talking about him being dead and then rising from the dead. So we can learn from, from his example as well in that he was, uh, he was not a, a, or he was a no-nonsense preacher. He preached the truth. He preached the gospel message. He preached repentance. But when people hardened their hearts, he moved on. He went to the next town. And that's the instruction he gave to his disciples. Go to this town. Go to this other town. If they receive you, you know, give them your peace. But if they reject you, then shake the dust of your sandals and go to the next town. And I think this is good practical advice for us. If we have invested over and over in proclaiming the gospel message to someone, well, maybe it's time we just entrust them to the Lord and move on to the next one. Now, before we move on, I do want to ask this important question. So far, we have been identifying with Jesus, right? In, in, in his rejection, we have been thinking maybe 
or, or applying this passage more from the perspective of Jesus and saying, yes, we will experience rejection and, and we need to be wise. But the question that I want to ask is, what if we fit more the description of the people of Nazareth? What if we are the people of Nazareth? What if, like them, many of us grew up with Jesus, as it were? Why we grew up in church, we grew up reading the Bible, we grew up uh, in a Christian family, and maybe we're taking Jesus for granted. Maybe the, the, we have listened to the world a little bit too much to the point that now Jesus' message is starting to sound offensive to us. Or maybe we have hardened our hearts so much that we are having a hard time believing the words of Jesus. Maybe we have hardened our hearts so much by allowing sin into our lives and, and not confessing it that we have a hard time believing in his miracles, believing in his power. Maybe we have been hypocritical in our Christian life in that we put on a face for the public, but in reality, we are someone completely different at home to the point that we are now beginning to take offense at Jesus' message. Or maybe like, like the people of Nazareth, maybe what is bothering us is that this message is so open, so welcoming of outsiders, right? What really upset the people of Nazareth is that Jesus was saying, I came here to bring the good news of the kingdom to the outcast, to the poor, to sinners, to prostitutes. And they did not like that. They had their own happy little Christian circle where everyone knew their Bible. Everyone won their, uh, what do you call it, like their Bible drills. Everyone had it all together. And when Jesus comes saying, no, I actually came to reach to those, to the ones that don't have it all together. And they are going to come. They're going to repent. They're going to share the kingdom with you. And maybe that is what we are finding so offensive. So something to, something to think about, something to pray about and ask God to reveal that in our hearts. But let's move to chapter 14. And here we see that the kingdom of God will also meet uh, opposition and persecution. In the first story, the kingdom of God meets skepticism. In this story, the kingdom of God meets persecution and uh, opposition. This seems like a weird transition, right? Why, why is he talking about the parables? Remember, this is a section. This is a very clear new section that Matthew has opened. And he goes on to say, Jesus was rejected in, in Nazareth, and he moves to the death of John. So why, why does he do that? What does John have to do with all of this? And, and in fact, the weird thing about this passage is that 
This is not even chronological. Right? John had, had been dead for a while now. Well, I think that the reason why Matthew is including this here is because John is such an important figure in the kingdom of God. John is such a transitional figure in the kingdom of God. Listen to what Jesus said of John. He said, truly, this is Matthew 11, 11 through 15. Jesus said, truly, I said to you, among those born of women, there has not, sorry, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus is saying, there's no one greater than John in the Old Testament era. But even the least in the kingdom of God, even the most unimportant person who is of the kingdom of God is greater than John. So there is a, a transition here. John is the last Old Testament prophet. With the death of John, this era of Old Testament prophecy, Old Covenant is, is, is ending and the kingdom of God is beginning. This is, in other words, Matthew is, is saying the kingdom of God is kicking off. The kingdom of God is taking shape. But again, it, it seems kind of backwards, right? Well, if the kingdom of God is just beginning, then why is Jesus being rejected? Why does he withdraw? It says that when he heard about the death of John, it says that he withdrew to a private place. If the kingdom of God is just beginning, why is not everything just going upward? Well, he prophesied it. He said, the kingdom of God is like a field where the wheat grows together with the wheat. And it's not until the end that, that the two are separated. The kingdom of God is like a, like a fisherman that casts his net on the sea into the sea, and when he pulls it out, there's all sorts of fish, right? He throws the ones that he wants on one side, and he keeps the ones that he wants. He keeps the ones that he wants in the boat. So, again, this is nothing new. This is something to be expected. Now, this uh, story of the death of John is, is really... Is really gruesome. And Herod is an interesting character. The, the family of Herod is it, it's altogether extremely interesting and extremely confusing. If you have time, you, uh, you should definitely go look it up. There is a lot of weird intermarriage and uh, yeah, just a lot of crazy stuff. And, and we get a little sample of that here, right? Herod. Um, Herod the Tetrarch, who was the son of Herod the, the, the Great, the one that wanted to kill Jesus when he was a baby, Herod the Tetrarch had married his brother Philip's wife. And so John preached out against that. John preached out against it in the same way that Jesus would have preached against it. 
He preached against it because that was adultery. Remember what Jesus said? He said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman, he, commit, he commits adultery. So John was very bold in proclaiming the word of God. John came in righteousness. John came preaching repentance. He was bold in his preaching. He did not shy away from preaching righteousness, even, even to someone of such rank as Herod. But his preaching, his boldness, had a cost. His boldness ended up costing him his life. Now, before we move on a little bit more, I, I do want to, to, to uh, throw a little implication here. When Herod heard about the fame of Jesus, this is chapter 14, verse 1, he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So Herod saw, John, sorry, Herod saw Jesus or heard about Jesus. And he thought, man, this is John. John has risen from the dead. Now, I'm going to give you a very uh, unlikely scenario just to illustrate my point. And then I'm going to switch it around to, to a way more likely scenario. But if you, if you died, say, I don't know, today, tomorrow, in a few years, if you died and then Jesus came to, to minister here on earth and someone saw Jesus, would they be able to say, wow, look at that. Look at Jesus. Or, well, look at, you know, look at this person. Maybe he is so-and-so resurrected. Maybe he is Jordan risen from the dead. Maybe he is uh, Anna risen from the dead or something like that. Obviously, that's a very unlikely scenario. But let me switch that around. When people see you, when people hear your preaching, when people see what you do, the way that you behave, the way that you go about life, are they able to see Jesus in you? Are they able to see the power of the resurrected Jesus in you? Maybe no one will say, oh, look, you know, look at Cameron and say, oh, look, there is Jesus. But will they, will they be able to say, wow, I can totally see the power of Jesus in the life of Cameron, in the life of Dave, in the, in, in the life of uh, Liz. And John really understood this. Remember when, uh, remember when, when people came to John and they told him, hey, John, John, Jesus is baptizing people over here. You don't care about that? It doesn't make you a little... Jealous that Jesus is baptizing uh, people. But John understood. He knew and he said, I must decrease and Jesus must increase. He knew that his ministry was only to point to Christ. And we should understand as well that our ministry here on earth is to point others to Christ. We should understand that from the moment we were saved by the grace of God, the point is not that we become uh, a better version of ourselves. The point is not that we become truer and truer to ourselves. 
Rather, the point is that we die to ourselves more and more and more so that the life of Christ is lived in us. So in light of this, let us be bold. In light of opposition, in light of persecution, let us be bold like John. Again, the worst thing that you can do today is to denounce someone's sin. One of the worst things you can do today is to call someone out for their sins. Today, probably the worst sin or the worst sin in in our society is to challenge someone's reality. Right? Because today, everyone has their own reality. Now, I, you know, sure, we can, we can think about extreme examples where someone in, in, in his reality believes that maybe he is a different gender than he was born with or, or whatever, right? There are a lot of extreme examples, but I think that this mentality has even crept into the church as well. People today in the church do not like to be called out on their sin. People today do not like to be warned. By their, by their leaders or by their, their brothers and sisters. I've encountered several times when I, when I try to challenge someone, when I try to encourage someone about, about their sin or about something that is leading them to sin, I have encountered like, whoa, who are you to tell me what I should be doing? This is my life. I can, I can do whatever I want. And so, of course, this kind of attitude, this kind of opposition that we experience could lead us to withdraw a little bit and say, okay, well, even here in church, I live my own life, you live your own life, and we worship Jesus together, but we never talk to each other about our sins or about our our struggles. But what does the author of Hebrews say? In Hebrews 3.13, he says, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another once a year. No, exhort one another every day. Wow, that's a lot of exhortation. But we need it. We need a faithful brother. We need a faithful sister coming to us and saying, hey, this thing that you're doing is wrong. It goes against God and his law. You should change it. But again, today, the worst thing we can do is to speak out against someone's sin. But John was not like that. Jesus was not like that. Now, I do want to add a little bit of nuance here. Herod, even though he behaved like a pagan, he, interestingly enough, he called himself a Jew. He, he, he was supposedly a practicing Jew. This is actually very ironic, but he was a Sadducee. And the reason why it is ironic is because the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. Yet when he saw Jesus, all of a sudden he believes in the resurrection because he thought that Jesus was John resurrected. Now, I think it is important to point here how John exhorted Herod. John didn't go on his Twitter account and wrote in all caps, 
Herod is an adulterer and he has to repent. Hashtag blah, blah, blah. No. He knew Herod personally. He went to Herod personally to speak to him. He spoke directly to him. I'm sure he called him out on his Jewish faith. And so my point here is that, yes, we should be bold, but we shouldn't just be bold for the sake of offending others. We should not be afraid of offending people, but we shouldn't just go about blatantly offending as many people as we possibly can. I'm not saying that we should go on Facebook or Twitter and post all homosexuals are going to go to hell. Yes, I've done my, my deed for the kingdom of God. No. I'm talking about developing personal relationships with people. I'm talking about meeting people, talking to them and preaching a gospel of repentance to them, but also a gospel of salvation for those who repent. We're not going to go over the details of John's death, but I do want to quote this from uh, James, James Montgomery Boyce. He writes, John's fate reminds us of the kind of world in which we live. It is a world that has rejected Jesus and will reject his best disciples too. The world does not want to be told that it is sinful that it has broken the holy law of God, that it needs a Savior who is Jesus. But those who walk in the footsteps of John and the other saints who have preceded us will be as bold as these men were. How are any to be saved if we do not speak the truth about sin and preach the gospel boldly? May our character be like like Jesus and John, with boldness and wisdom, may our life reflect the life of Jesus. And when we are rejected, may we remember that ultimately the one they are rejecting is Jesus, not us. The one they are turning away from is Jesus. But what did Jesus do? He fed the crowds. Right after, John, right after he hears the report of John's death, he goes to a private place, but people come seeking for him, and he feeds them. He, this, this is the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. This same Jesus that experienced rejection continued to shepherd the lost sheep of Israel, and eventually gave his life for them. This is the Jesus that gave his life to forgive repentant sinners like you and I. He welcomes those who come in repentance. He welcomes them into his kingdom. Remember the message that John preached. When John saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus can take away your sin. Jesus can cleanse you from your sin. We might be discouraged at the seeming setbacks in the kingdom of God, but we have to remember that the darkest 
point in the kingdom of God or in the history of the kingdom of God was when Jesus died on the cross. And yet it was through his death on the cross that he was accomplishing his victory and our salvation. So as we take communion, let us remember the work of Jesus on the cross. As we take communion, let's, let's take some time to uh, ask the Lord to, uh, to look into our own hearts, to examine our hearts, and to show us if we have engaged in this kind of sin, in the sin of skepticism, in the sin of rebelling against him, opposition, or any other sin. I want us to take a few minutes. We're going to be playing a, a, just a little bit of uh, music here before we start singing. And we want to be very intentional about taking this time to repent of any, of any sin that we have not confessed to God. Just right there in your spot, silently ask God for his forgiveness and remember his sacrifice. Then as we uh, start singing, you are welcome to come and take of the elements bring them back to your seat, and then we will drink them together. Now, this is something reserved for those who have actually experienced the forgiveness that God offers. This is for those that have experienced the salvation that he offers. Let's pray. God, we thank you for giving us your son, Jesus. We thank you that he came preaching a message of repentance. He came preaching the good news of the kingdom. And God, I pray that as we encounter skepticism, as we encounter opposition and persecution, I pray that you give us boldness like John and that you give us wisdom like Jesus. Please examine our hearts, Lord, and show us if we are the people of Nazareth, if we have rejected you, if we have taken offense at you, if we have hardened our sins against you, our hearts against you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.